Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. This podcast tells the stories of our members exploring and sharing their research in and across the region. Welcome to the SEAC Stories podcast. I'm Natalie Pearson. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in Vietnamese women, with over 10,000 new cases diagnosed annually and 89% of patients presenting with late stages, making the treatment more difficult with low survival rates. Today we're going to be talking with Professor Patrick Brennan about what can be done to detect this cancer early and about the innovative tools he and his team have developed to boost detection rates. Professor Brennan is based here at the University of Sydney in the Faculty of Medicine and Health and is the world's most published medical radiation scientist. His publications involve exploring novel technologies and techniques that enhance the detection of clinical indicators of disease while minimising risk to the patient. He's recognised as a leader in clinical translation of medical imaging optimization and radiological perception. Patrick, welcome and thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I was fascinated to read that breasts are more dense in Vietnam than in Australia. I could ask you why that is the case, but perhaps more important is the question of what are the consequences of this? Well, there are two key consequences. Um, The first is that breast density makes it more difficult to see cancer on the mammogram. You can imagine that um, when an X-ray passes through the breast, that will appear dark on an X-ray image. But if your breast is dense, it means that more of the X-rays will be stopped and therefore the breast will appear white on the image. The problem is that cancers appear white as well. So we have this thing called a masking effect where the natural density of the breast will overlie the whiteness of the cancer and therefore, to some extent, camouflage it. So that masking effect is something we've known about for for decades. Um, And therefore, for uh, women in Vietnam, for example, this becomes a major issue if you're using mammography to try and diagnose the cancer. The other thing is, because often in, in Vietnam, women are younger, not only by being Vietnamese is the breast more dense, but by being younger, the breast is additionally more dense. So compounding the problem. So that's the first issue about density. The second issue about density, and, but this is really more about westernized women, there's more evidence around this for westernized women, is that, that those women with higher dense breasts per body mass index tend to have a higher risk of cancer. And therefore, it means that those women with dense breasts really do need to have good diagnosis around breast cancer Um, And then we're back to the masking effect, which is going to try and reduce the ability for clinicians to see the cancer. Now, in terms of whether the women in Vietnam with dense breasts compared with westernized populations have a higher risk, it's really hard to say because normally in Vietnam, we would say that the incidence of breast cancer is lower than in westernized populations. And don't forget, the westernized populations will have lower dense breasts. So The situation is a little bit complicated, but having said that, what we are seeing in Vietnam 
is increasing incidence rates, that the numbers are increasing due to more westernized standards and and adopting uh, lifestyle factors associated with westernized women. Um, and so the, um, the, the situation in Vietnam is a dynamic one. We're seeing variations in incidents and that we've got to manage that. But coming back to your original question, the problems with dense breasts are twofold. They mask the cancer. And secondly, particularly in westernized women, higher dense breasts means higher risk of having an eventual breast cancer. That was a really great explanation. Thank you. So you've mentioned mammography. What are the tools that medical experts use to detect and diagnose breast cancer? Is mammography the main one? Well, in a place like Australia and westernized populations in the US, in in Europe and so on, mammography is the frontline tool. Uh, There are variations on mammography. We have plain mammography where you get two views of each breast, but now we have a new innovation which is increasingly used in diagnostic circles in Australia and elsewhere called digital breast homosynthesis, which is where rather than, if you can imagine, the breast being in position and the x-ray tube just simply x-raying the breast, the x-ray tube now with digital breast homosynthesis sweeps across the breast. And that allows us to get, if you like, slices of imaging, images through the breast, and we can create 3D pictures of the breast, and that helps enormously. In Vietnam, what we're seeing is that mammography is being used, but so too is ultrasound. And ultrasound is a, has a, generally a, a better ability to try and get through this dense tissue. But in terms of overall diagnostic efficacy for looking for breast cancer, mammography is, is still the, the gold standard, particularly for screening populations. Okay, so... My next question is about the accuracy of interpreting these mammograms. So you've described to us how images of the breast are taken through um, mammograms, and and there's also the ultrasound technique that you've talked about. But are the mammograms only as accurate as the person interpreting them? At the moment, yes. And this is really where my research focuses, is, is trying to improve the interpretation of these mammograms. Because um, what we know, we've done a lot of work on this um, in Europe, in the US, in Australia, and, and also in Vietnam and in other Asian populations. And what we see is that the ability to interpret the mammogram by a human varies hugely. Um, even when I first arrived in Australia 12 years ago, one of the first tasks I had was just to see how efficient Australian radiologists were at diagnosing breast cancer from mammograms. And even amongst Australian radiologists, who I would rank as the best in the world, we could see variations between um, different clinicians. Um, When you actually bring that to Vietnam then, and you use the Australian performance as a benchmark, what we see in Vietnam is that the numbers in terms of sensitivity and specificity are much lower. Um, So we may be changing from maybe in Australia from 70 to 80% sensitivity to something below 50% in Vietnam. And this is, we've looked at reasons for this. A lot of it's around not having a good training program. A lot of it is around very young doctors um, having to diagnose these uh, these women with not necessarily having the experience, um, having the numbers of reads per year or any education around diagnosing the um, the image. So yes, the, there is. This is a big deal. The the ability of the human to interact with the image effectively 
and try and give a good diagnosis. Obviously, in, in recent last couple of years, we're hearing increasingly around artificial intelligence and how that's going to help. Um, I think it will help. I do not think, certainly in the near future, it's going to replace humans. I think humans are still the gold standard. And when one really understands the expert nature of an individual interpreting a mammogram, it's very hard to see how machines can compete with that, um, particularly because I would argue that breast trying to diagnose breast cancer is probably the toughest radiological task. But I can see how artificial intelligence will complement humans. So I think humans is going to be in the formula for, for many years to come. So we, the reason why we're doing a lot of work in Vietnam in, and in Australia and elsewhere is to improve that human interaction with the image. You've just said that diagnosing breast cancer is one of the most challenging tasks for radiologists. What sort of training do radiologists in Vietnam go through? Like you've mentioned this um, number of reads per year. Is there a sort of minimum standard that they have to meet or can you outline what the training program is for them? Yeah, well, if I could just give you what the training program would be like in, or the situation is like in Australia, and then we can use that as a benchmark. Um, what we have in Australia is we have people who go through medical school, um, then they have two or three years experience, general experience and experience in different types of clinical training. Um, and then they decide to become a radiologist and they, they do another five years training to become a radiologist. And within that training, there may be a breast fellowship, for example, um, but breast would be part of that training. And then after that, the national accreditation standards in Australia would insist that radiologists, for breast screening radiologists, that they read 2,000 cases a year minimum, um, which is significantly higher than, for example, in the US. And then we think that these people are, um, have the right training and experiences and so on to, to read women's uh, mammograms within the breast screening program. So it's highly rigorous and they're clinically audited. They're checked on for their performances and so on. Um, in Vietnam, in contrast, you have medical students who have gone through the medical training. And then after that, it all seems to fizzle out, that they're suddenly thrust into an environment where you see 27, 28-year-old doctors having to interpret breast images, as well as interpret lots of other types of images. So firstly, they rarely get the proper training. That's very rare, unless they go overseas. Um, secondly, they'll get some experiences maybe with watching peers interpret the image. But don't forget, those peers have not necessarily been appropriately trained in, in breast cancer screening or looking at mammograms and so on. Um, and they're not getting the numbers per year that they need to get, to, you know, 2,000 reads per year. And some, some people in Australia are doing 50,000 reads per year. But to get 2,000 reads per year requires... Um, a, a, a large a number of reads per week, around 40 or 50 a week. They're not, and the people in Vietnam are not necessarily getting that. So this leads us to what we do and our sort of innovation, which I know we're going to, be, going to be talking about in a few minutes, around the breast platform and the Vietrad project and so on. That will give people the opportunity to be more efficient at diagnosing mammograms and, and breast cancers. And, and the other problem is, you see, in a screening environment, in a westernized, say, for someone like Australia, only one in 200 women actually have a cancer. Now, in, in the numbers in Vietnam will be greater because they're going to be much more symptomatic women. But it does mean 
that they don't necessarily encounter cancers very often. Um, and therefore, recognizing cancers and seeing a lot of cancers over a short period of time is critically important. And again, this sort of dovetails possibly into a future question of yours around what we're doing to try and address that. Yeah, and I think you've really outlined there why women are falling through the cracks in terms of the diagnostic efficacy of mammograms in Vietnam. One of the things I would like to ask you about before we turn to your projects, be it RAD and Breast, but one of the things I would like to ask you about first is your partnerships in Vietnam because you've collaborated quite closely with the Ministry of Health and other national agencies. How have these collaborations come about? Well, um, I was in a very fortunate position because 12 years ago I was made um, Associate Dean for International for the Faculty of Health Sciences. So I started um, going out to Vietnam a lot around around 12 years ago, and I started to get to know quite a lot of people, particularly in Hanoi and Hanoi Medical University, Bat Nai Hospital, um, the Ministry of Health and so on, but also in Ho Chi Minh City, University of Medicine and Pharmacy. Um, and one of the first things we did, in fact, was create, quite different from my own expertise, we create the first physiotherapy undergraduate program in Vietnam with the help of Professor Catherine Rashorgi, and who was a dean at the time, and we, um, and, and we were very excited about that, and that, I think, is going well, although I'm not involved in that anymore. But as a result of those, that sort of role, I came to know some really incredibly super people in Vietnam. Professor Tu, who was the vice rector of Hanoi Medical University, uh, Dr. Wan, who is head of the Health Strategy and Policy Institute of the Ministry of Health. And these people were absolutely full of energy, um, extraordinarily smart, um, could see what Vietnam needed, and we really, really worked tremendously well, which led to a number of grants, a number of projects, and really, for me, Vietnam has become a passion, because I think that with these brilliant people I'm working with in Vietnam, and with my own colleagues here at the University of Sydney, I think we can make a difference, and we can make a difference quickly, and I'm just very happy that we're in that position. Sounds very exciting. So let's talk about those projects. Um, I did note that in addition to being the world's most published medical radiation specialist, you also seem to be very good with an acronym. So your current project is called VIETRAD. Could you tell us what that stands for and what the project is about? Yeah, I have to support that. We are pretty cool with the acronyms. In fact, the VIETRAD project is based on the BREAST project and the BREAST project actually stands for the BREAST screen reader assessment strategy so it's an acronym for that and we set up breast and i think i just need to talk about breast for a moment so then we understand what we're trying to do with vietrad we set up breast uh, with the um, state radiologist at the time professor warwick lee and that um, uh, project aimed at trying to standardize the performance of Australian radiologists. As I said, Australian radiologists are really good but there's still variation between them so what we did there was um, we created a platform where we put high-quality images onto the platform and we knew the truth of those images. So we knew which ones have cancer, we, we knew which ones hadn't. And then we uh, allowed radiologists anywhere in Australia to log on, see if they could diagnose these cases, and then the algorithms behind the scenes were able to tell the radiologists very quickly how good they are, how good they were compared with their colleagues, and where they were making their mistakes and since that time, we've shown that this platform does improve um, performance in, in clinical diagnosing um, images. And so far, this platform is now used in, in four continents 
um, and we developed it recently, you may have heard, for the COVID situation to try and improve diagnosis of COVID on, on, with lung CT. But about three or four years ago, speaking to my colleagues in Vietnam, we decided, could we do something similar to breast in Vietnam to help bring up the um, uh, competency levels of, of clinicians looking at breast images in, in Vietnam? And as a result of that, we spoke with a number of individuals here, a number of individuals in, in Vietnam, and we spoke to the Australian government, the Vietnam government. Eventually, we got funding from Osford Innovation to fund the Viet Rad project. And the Viet Rad project is simply about implementing a breast type situation in various parts of Vietnam. Um, and this project, it really started, the funding started about a year ago. And it wasn't a case of simply bringing breast over to Vietnam. That didn't work. Firstly, as we mentioned earlier, the appearances of breasts are different in Vietnam. So we couldn't simply use the the platform as it was in Australia. <clears throat> it had to be in Vietnamese. It also had to be easier. There's no point giving, uh, putting me into a Ferrari and expecting me to drive really well. We need to start when teaching people. We need to start at uh, with images of a difficulty that suit uh, the individual clinicians and then build up that difficulty so we had to do that. And also it had to be cloud-based. In the, the breast platform in Australia wasn't. It was being loaded locally. Um, that would have been much more problematic in Vietnam. So we wanted a cloud-based solution. So we really had to almost go back to the drawing board and work with another industrial partner to try and provide a solution that would work in Vietnam. And we're really at a very exciting point of this because we're now going to be running two workshops in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City in the next uh, two to four weeks. Um, we're in bringing, um, virtually we're bringing clinicians over to, to Vietnam to help teach around um, breast imaging and so on. And we'll be introducing this platform, which we hope to make available to all Vietnam clinicians, wherever they're located, anywhere in the world, uh, or anywhere in Vietnam, I should say, that will hopefully improve their abilities to detect breast cancer. Well, that really is exciting. And one of my questions was going to be about whether there are implications beyond Vietnam in terms of the data that's being collected. Do you see this Vietrad model being rolled out elsewhere or having potential application in other countries? It's something we would dearly like to do. We're already working with a number of countries. We've used um, our systems, for example, in Malaysia, in Singapore, in, in a number of countries in Europe and elsewhere, uh, with Slovenia, New Zealand and so on. Um, but we really would love for this platform to be rolled out much more broadly um, than it currently is. We're, we're doing well, but I think um, we need always champions in other countries to help us um, implement things. Um, it's no point us just coming from the outside and suggesting this is your solution. We've got to work in partnership with people on the ground who know best what uh, is needed and how it can be best implemented. Um, but we're ready. We, we are very, very happy to talk to anyone in any other countries about implementing what we do. And indeed, I'm very confident, uh, particularly from the Vietnam experiences, but our experience elsewhere, that we can adapt the program to suit the needs of a, of a wide variety of people. 
Yeah, so if you're listening to this podcast, consider that an invitation to reach out directly to Professor Brennan. (laughs) The last question, and no less important for being the last question, is what sort of cultural issues do you need to take into consideration when you're dealing with an issue as sensitive and with such grave implications as this one? Um, I think culture is, is really important. You've got to have champions locally who really understand what's required locally to make something work. Absolutely essential. Um, In Vietnam, there are many cultural issues, but I think it's relatively straightforward. But if I go to other countries, for example, we've done some work in Saudi Arabia, for example. In my experience, the cultural issues can become more difficult because you have uh, you have a layer of religious issues that can make it more complicated as well. And for example, we've had a, a, a couple of PhD students working in, in, in the Middle East. And what we find is there is no point doing what we do unless we're working with local community leaders, religious leaders, um, to uh, engage with the women as we engage with the women through workshops and so on, um, to ensure that what we do has the backing of these important people in, the, in those cultures. And we've done a, a fair bit of research on this. We, we understand that women in Saudi Arabia, for example, are unlikely to go to a screening program as it stands. And we've got to introduce screening programs in a much more sensitive way if we want engagement. And that means working not just with um, the women involved, but working with local community leaders religious leaders, um, and and so on. So cultural issues are really, really important. It would be totally naive and foolish for any of us to think we can just, we have the solution, we can walk in and implement it. It doesn't work. Um, It's a much more gradual process where we engage with the locals to make sure that we understand better what the locals need and how things can be best implemented. And I think the success of your work in Vietnam really builds upon those partnerships and collaborations that, that you have established. So congratulations on that. And before before we go, I, I think we haven't actually told our listeners what VietRAD stands for. So would you like to explain that acronym for us, Patrick? Well, it's a relatively easy acronym. It's, it's, it's simply, um, obviously, the Viet part is, is to say that we want to work in Vietnam and the RAD part is around radiological detection of disease so hence the Vietrad project well it certainly is rad and thank you so much for joining us and best of luck with your workshops coming up in the next few weeks it's a pleasure and thanks for the opportunity to talk to you today you've been listening to SEAC stories brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney make sure to keep up with all our SEAC stories podcasts by following us on your favorite podcasting app if you like the show please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. 